The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, take a break from Jungle Love and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 346 with guests Oren Eaney, Ted Neward, and Scott Bellware, recorded live at DevTeach, Tuesday, May 6, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklin.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who really can play four instruments at once, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's your Thursday show. Richard and Carl here for your listening pleasure, your .NET listening pleasure. Hey, Richard, man, howdy, how howdy, are howdy. you, sir? Well, you know, this week I um, published a a uh, video that I did on Memorial Day with my daughter, and uh, my daughter's twelve. I asked her if she wanted to be in the video, like, you know, dancing or whatever. It's Jungle Love by Steve Miller Band. Awesome. It's another one of these Carl plays all and sings, you know, kind of things. Carl uh, rocks out is what it is. It really is. I mean, I just really needed to rock out. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, but she didn't want to be on camera this time, but I'm slowly coaxing her. You know, she's 12. She's a little shy. But she did, uh, uh, she did do some camera work. Along with, uh, Yumi, who's a, um, a Japanese girl who my mother is hosting as an exchange student. She's ah. 16. Yep. So the two of them did camera work and actually operating the multi-track recorder and, you know, rewinding and, well, you know, it's digital. So it's not rewinding, but retaking and all that stuff. So they got a little taste of what it's like in the studio. And I had a great time. That's cool. So you can go out to my blog or just Google Carl Franklin Jungle Love which was the name of the song. You'll find it. Richard, how are you doing, man? I am doing very, very well. Of course, uh, prep for tech ed taking up my whole life. 
trying to yeah. get all the sessions done, trying to get all the panel set up, uh, speaker idle in order. Did you get all the uh, all the slots filled for speaker idle? Oh yeah, you know, as soon as you publish it out on the Dotnet Rocks, all chaos broke <laughs> loose. And unfortunately, I had to say no to a whole bunch of people. But yeah. you know, I, that's there was only a couple of slots, and I thought it might be fun to throw it out to the listeners, and it's been fun. So sorry for those who didn't make it in. I hope you'll come and watch. Yes, and uh, of course there are the wild card slots, which I already hinted to a few people about. So if you think you can do it, catch me on the stage, and we'll get you into a wild card slot. Excellent. Well, let's just get started here with Better No Framework. <laughs> What do you got? All right. Well, you know, Better Know Framework is a section where I uh, find pieces of the .NET framework you may or may not have heard of, and I'm just sort of shining a little light on uh, something that's in there that you can go look up in the help file and learn more about, or, you know, Google for, or go to search.net.com, learn more about it. Anyway, today's uh, little piece is the system.typed reference class. Oh, yeah. If you remember on Tuesday, I talked about the field info, you know, when you're system.type.fieldinfo, which is a, a, I'm sorry, system.reflection.fieldinfo, which is a class that talks about or describes a field in a class. Well, typed reference is interesting. This describes objects that contain both a managed pointer to a location and a runtime representation of the type that may be stored at that location. Right. So it's kind of just like a combination of both. Okay. And uh, I'm looking at the members. Uh, it has a make typed reference static method that makes a typed reference object for a field identified by a specified object and a list of field descriptions, which is a field info array. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, System.typed reference, check it out. Coming to a theater near you. Speaking of theaters, did you see Indy? The new Indy movie yet? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I went to Iron Man. I thought that was enough for a while. Yeah, there's a lot of good movies out. I, I am not generally a movie person, but I, you know, Iron Man and Indy, it's kind of hard to stay home when that stuff is going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, you got an email for us. I do indeed. This is a bit of a long one, but I get to do long ones on Thursday. I think you'll enjoy it. The subject is, .NET Rocks improved my career and my marriage, but not yet my fitness. Oh. Carl and Richard, .NET Rocks was a career-altering discovery for me. I found DNR from a link on MSDN about four or five years ago. The show mm. numbers at the time were in the 30s or 40s. Back when they used to host us at MSDN. Yeah, we still show up there every so often. It's not the same, but... It's been a just, while since yeah, they updated Yeah, last it. week we were the number one link on the MSDN website. The first mm. one was the show with uh, Nikhil Kothari. Right. Uh, where was I? I had gone to MSDN searching for software-related material for my commute as AM Talk Radio made me either grumpy or depressed by the time I got to work. <laughs> DNR turned that right around. I yeah. arrived at work smiling, often with laugh cramps, in a good mood, and armed with new and useful knowledge. I also returned home in a good mood, smiling and ready to meet my family instead of grumbling about the politics or catastrophes du jour. Gee, if you want to smile, you should listen to Mondays. There you go. <laughs> or cringe, as the case may yeah, be. Yeah, cringe, true. I know other listeners have credited you with their continued career and family success, and I don't hesitate to join them. Hmm. Even before my company switched to .NET, almost all of the .NET Rocks content was still applicable or interesting to me. Hmm. For about a year there, I was afraid my company's mainstream development would move to Java from Delphi, and I fought this at every turn. Hmm. 
When we finally switched to .NET, we went whole hog. Within a few months, we all had Visual Studio Team System, MSDN Universal Subscriptions, Team Foundation Server with a Scrum template, nice. and Team Foundation Services training from Imaginet. Wow, cool. That's Joel Semeniak. Joel Semeniak, yeah, yeah, fellow Canadian of yours. Yes, sir. <laughs> I was way sense. ahead of the curve in this transition for the sole reason that I've been listening to .NET Rocks for years. Awesome. There is still plenty for me to learn, and as some of your guests have pointed out, there is no possible way to master all of .NET. Yeah. But the background information, enthusiasm, and context provided by .NET Rocks has sure made this platform switch much easier and more exciting for me. And did I mention that I love the show even as a Delphi developer and recommended it to everyone at work? Now that we're actually using .NET, I love it even more. Sweet. I also want to say that I really like the current format of the show. I love the Rory era shows, but Richard's witty jabs have me laughing out loud just as much, although sometimes I feel a bit self-conscious because if any non-geeks were present, it would be impossible to explain to them why it was so funny. Yeah, like the Goliath story, for Ah, example. (laughs) (laughs) The current format has high information density while still providing that laugh cramp-inducing permagrin that takes a few hours to wear off, (laughs) makes you that much more amiable at work and at home. Richard, what was the, speaking of your comments, what was the comment you said? We were at uh, Dev Connections at the closing session where we were giving away the, sn- uh, the swag and we were doing a 64-bit question and oh, it was right, about DBAs. Right. Oh, and it was the DB, yeah, the DBI gate guy was going to, was up to win the camera. That's right. And you came and, up with and, a one-liner. And I asked him, hey, was- what do you do? And they, and he says, Oh, I'm a DBA and a whole bunch of room booed. And I turn around and says, don't you boo him. He needs his camera. Take a picture of the tables. You messed up. <laughs> That's what we're talking That's about. That's what we're talking about. That's what we do, folks. <laughs> uh, let me finish the, uh, the right. email here. Keep up the great work. I hope your show benefits you as much as it benefits me. Sincerely, Dan Olson, Salt Lake City, Utah. Dan, thanks for the great email. Yeah. One of the reasons we love doing this is emails like that. Excellent. And you know, you could start walking every day. <laughs> I mean, if I can do it, dude, you can do it. Oh, no. I'm perfectly happy we helped his career in his marriage. Let's leave his fitness to himself. <laughs> oh, well, okay. If you say so. Uh, well, of course, we're going to be a tech ed. And uh, after that, what's next, Richard, after tech ed? Oh, then we actually get a few weeks at home for a change. Although I don't. Strange Loop's endless for me, right? I'm off to the partner conference and things. But we're not going to be back together again for a conference until the fall to like uh, SDC in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's going to be fun in October. Followed right behind that by DevReach in Bulgaria. And speaking of conferences that sound like DevReach, we were at DevTeach just a few weeks ago Yeah, in Toronto, where we recorded a panel session on what was to be the future of .NET, but it sort of got a little uh, tangential. Might be something about the panelists we had, <laughs> I think. But we knew that going in. When we put those guys together, we yeah. knew this was going to be trouble. So anyway, it's Thursday. You know what the hell. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the uh, panel discussion from DevTeach. Hey, Toronto! Welcome to .NET Rocks! Wow! This is, this is the biggest crowd I've ever seen. Biggest ever. There must be 4,000 people in this room. At least. I didn't know there was that many people in Toronto. We are at DevTeach in Toronto. Uh, I would first like to thank John Renee and uh, DevTeach for providing us with beer. 
And uh, thanks very much for that. We are here talking about the future of .NET, are we not, Richard? That was the intent. Well, I had a group of troublemakers, and I figured if I was going to get them into a fight, picking the future of .NET would be a good way to do it. This, uh, this is going to be the Jerry Springer of, uh, of .NET Rocks, I think. So I'm going to ask the panelists to introduce themselves, starting with Mr. Ted. Ted Neward, right here on my right. You sure that's your right? Yes. You're positive. How are you, man? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Good. What am I supposed to be doing again? Uh, introduce yourself. Introduce myself. Wow. Hey. My name is God. <laughs> my name is Ted Neward. I'm a big geek. Wow. Okay. You're in for the short bio, then. All right, Scott. Who are you, and uh, what do you do? My name is also Ted Neward, but I'm cool. <laughs> It's like Ted Neward light. <laughs> With gray hair. Only on, the, only on the outside. And you are? I'm Owen Aini, and I'm the biggest geek. The uh, biggest geek. All right. Well, if you want to read their bios, they're on the web somewhere. Just Google them. So the future of .NET, boys. What is it? I don't know. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Clarify the question. Sorry? Clarify the question. Clarify the question. Well, okay. I can all, we, well, it's a pretty simple question. Like, you know, where do you see things going, right? I, um, I, I have what I like to believe, and uh, what I like to believe is that, you know, these, uh, uh, that the, 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 the 3G, 4G, 5G language kind of generation tools will get really good, um, so good that, Eventually, somebody will be able to just walk up to a computer and have a little conversation with it, and out will pop, you know, all the answers to all your problems. But the reality is, I think that software will pretty much always have to be written by people who know what they're doing, who understand good design and good architecture, no matter what uh, what your language or, or tools are going to do. But you know, that's just what I think. I would agree with that. Yeah, I I, I gotta agree with that. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> Richard, we, we're trying to stir up some trouble here. It's not working. Well, no, I think these guys are conspiring. <laughs> I figured everyone had sat for so long together thinking, oh, these guys are just going to do cadets. So they all got together last night and said, you know what would really screw with these guys? <laughs> we no, we would never degree. do that. You wouldn't do that. You would uh, never do that. Richard, it's all about the harmony and the cosmic. Yeah. The which? The, the harmony and the cosmic. Cosmic harmony. Cosmic uh, harmony. Cosmic it's karma. It's See? It's karma. That certainly explains domain-specific languages. It's all about the harmony. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll be right back. Uh, cool. Fastest panel ever. Right. Well, domain-specific languages are about walking up to a computer, having a conversation with them, and out pops some good software. So it, we should agree with that. That's uh, the way we should go. I think the problem is that we've got a set of software tooling right now that is not helping people understand how to express what they want. And if we could have people, uh, you know, uh, experienced. It looks like you're hurting Oren over there. Yeah, he's, no, he's getting a headache. I'm kicking him under <laughs> well, the we're table. Well, we're talking about the future, though, right? Um, the future. I don't know about the future. I can talk about DSLs. I agree. <laughs> okay. The, <laughs> the problem with, at least with DSLs uh, specifically, when you're talking about having a, a conversation with the computer, what is a conversation? Anyone of you ever tried to talk to a, 
a business analyst or a business person, domain expert, someone like that, and try to understand what they are talking about. Just talk about someone who deals with insurance. I can sort of speak English, but they're speaking, they're speaking French to me when they're talking. Right, because they're talking about what they talk about when they get together with their people in their own little world. Hell, I get that talking to my something. wife. That's a whole other set of issues, actually. <laughs> I, I do know from my experience as a consultant that, you know, job one on Monday morning is getting the glossary of terms of that particular company. It's really about learning the domain of, uh, of the company. And in general, the way that the company thinks is expressing the language that they use. But this language isn't necessarily natural language. In fact, in general, it shouldn't be. Because natural language is very ambiguous in many of the terms that you use. A domain-specific language tends to be very, uh, very unambiguous in what it uses in this specific domain. Right. So for that domain, we have very specific terms that mean exactly one thing. As a simple example, in, in, I built an application to schedule tasks. And in, in this, in this application, the term day has a very specific meaning. It wasn't a calendar day, it was a business day. Right. So when I'm talking about tomorrow, it's not, it's not the physical tomorrow, it's whatever the next, next business, business day. day. So in that scenario, when it's Friday and you talk about the next day, you're talking about Monday. Yeah. Okay, I get that. Unless idea. it was a holiday. <laughs> Don't get into that, please. <laughs> because it, I just like causing you pain. Is what yeah, I mean. but the problem is it's who holiday for whom, okay? So point taken is that before you can even use a DSL, you really have to define some redefined terms that you're already familiar with just in, within the scope of this uh, domain. Well, well it's, it's clarification of those terms, right. right? I mean, basically, when we say the next business day, what, what does that mean? And the problem is this is usually relative to some degree of scope. Yeah. And, and that's the big problem that we end up with is frequently in, in our space, what we try to do is we try to create solutions that will work everywhere, every when. And so when I create a date class, I want a date that not only can represent, you know, calendar year 2009, but calendar year 42 BC. Because there might be some point in time where we have to actually represent purchase orders that were created in the time of Caesar. Yes, yes. Because the company's been around that long. Right. Or at least it feels that way. Insurance companies need that kind of, you know, backdating though, because that's how they plan to pay you. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, not nice. me. So yeah, it's all about the compensation model. But well, if you had actually enacted, how would this Microsoft be able to figure out release dates for service packs? They couldn't like backdate to the times of season. <laughs> well, and I, and I remember which version of SQL Server was it that didn't handle dates before like 1650 or something? Uh, 2005. Yeah, it was. It was is it still? <laughs> nice. It was, it was a relatively oh, recent version, but I thought it was older time. than that. That was 2000 that did that. I mean, good and lord, no, that was right, three years ago. My yes. god, I, I right, can't believe they let that slip. Right now, 2005 can handle dates before 1753. 1753, which is where the Gregorian calendar kicked in. Um, probably. I, I know the dates. I just never figured out why. The start of the so basically, so this is the, the future, history departments this is the of universities of everywhere are screwed, is what we're saying. <laughs> so the future of .NET is obviously the same old conversation about uh, technical uh, minutia. 
Why? Well, because that's what we're doing. It's the panel of the future of .NET. But what is the f- talk, talk, tell me about the future? Is the future another technology? I don't care about technology anymore. If something comes out from somewhere, WCF is a good example of new technology that came out. I have enough interest in that to cover the basics, to maybe read a book, but that's it. I don't care about technology in the technological sense anymore. I care about how I can solve a business problem, how I can make something happen. Considering the amount of stuff that I need to learn in order to just be a basic level in many topics, that is not possible. You have to have a lot more specialization. You have to have a lot more commonality so I can take knowledge and pass it from one area of one speciality to another. If I'm working today on a web application, working tomorrow on a Windows application, I have the, I'm using the same knowledge. Maybe not the same API, maybe not the same method calls, but the design principles are the same. The general architecture would be the same. There are differences because in the web I'm stateless or stateful or something like that, but overall I'm seeing a lot more um, convergence of, th- of things. I don't want to have to learn 900 uh, different ways doing something. I want to learn one way in, speci- in specialization. Well, let's of talk that. about the tools that we use right now and if you have uh, visions for how they could be improved. Do you think, do you, let's put it the other way. Do you think that the main specific languages are really sort of the direction that programming is going in generationally? I'm doing a lot with domain specific languages. And I would like to see more of that happening. I'm not sure that you can say that this is something that you would want to do everywhere. Right. Uh, for the simple example, if my solution to everything is a domain specific language, well, now I have to learn three dozen languages. Maybe they, they share the same basic syntax, but why, why is it any different than learning three dozen different APIs or three, three dozen different environments? So we just migrated the problem of complexity from the API level over to this language level. Yes, you could do a lot more with domain-specific language than with an API, so you may get some benefit out of that. But it isn't really scalable in the same, in the sense that, okay, I get a, twice as much than that. But then it stops. I want a solution that allows me to handle things all the way. When, when the complexity goes from one to 10, my, the complexity of my solution shouldn't be 10. It should be 1.1 or 1.2. That's what I'm looking for. Do you think we've hit a sort of an equilibrium between productivity and complexity? No. We haven't. No. no. So we could be no. much more productive I think without, with being less complex. When, when you use the word productive, I think what in some respects you're implying, forgive me for putting words in your That's mouth, okay. is this idea that we have found tools that will allow us to express concepts at a higher level of abstraction. At a higher at a higher level of speed too is what I mean. Well, it, they've done studies. 
where they track the amount of code a programmer of all different levels, skill levels, can yeah. produce. And it turns out that most of us have the same number of lines of code in us per day. Yeah. With the rank beginning programmer, typically those lines of code end up sort of layering on top of one another because he writes some code and then he has to rip it out and replace it and then he has to rip it out and replace it because yeah. it takes him so many times to get something done. Whereas the master programmer will typically write it once and it will work the way he wants it to. So he is seen as more productive because the number of lines of code that we keep of his at the end of the day is much higher than the rank beginner. But a line of code isn't a line of code. One line of code can do ten times more productivity. Well, this is one of the studies right. that they also did is they said, okay, so for a given expression in a language, how many assembly level instructions does this turn into? Right? That was a metric designed to try to test the efficacy of a single line of code. Higher levels of abstraction, which is what you're exactly. talking about. Yeah. And it turns out for a lot of the languages that we're used to, the C, C++, Java, C Sharp, VB, etc., these, you know, these maybe get into the double digits. Yeah. When you look at languages like Smalltalk and Lisp, it's into the five or six digits per line of code. And what we see with a language like Lisp is the fact that we can build abstractions on top of abstractions on top of abstractions, but this is all done in a library as opposed to defining a formal language in the sense of building, you know, you know, Lex and Yak and building a parser and turning it into an AST, et cetera. So it sounds like your answer is yes, actually. You, we have sort of equalized out the, our productivity versus complexity. Like the. No, I don't think we've equalized. I think we're going to waver back and forth on the, you know, we're just basically going to bounce in this circular fashion, right? Almost a sine wave where what's going to happen is, and you see, you've seen it happen over the last 40 years, right? We start doing something, complexity goes up, goes up, goes up, and then all of a sudden we hit a new abstraction level. We go, oh, wow, we can add recursion into our language, and suddenly things get much, much simpler right. again, which our, our productivity goes up in sort of an inverse fashion yeah. to the complexity. And then all of a sudden we start saying, oh, okay, now we're really, we're starting to push it, push it, push it. Oh, okay, bang, now we get another level of abstraction and so on. We're just going to keep doing this ad infinitum. But, I mean, have those things, so the, the, the swing has gotten smaller, don't you think? No. You don't think so? No. But the height has gotten higher. I mean, we are adding layers of abstraction. Oh, I mean, the curve is genuinely slow, you know, generally sloping up. Don't get me wrong. Right, the the whole notion of virtualization, JVM, CLR, etc., right. makes us more productive. The fact that we've ha gotten much much stronger hardware than we did ten years ago, yes, or means last that, year for that matter. Well, mm -hmm. whatever, right, means that the JVM and the CLR are much more feasible tools for us to use in business problems. But the thing of it is, we're still. I mean, within that band that is steadily climbing up. We're still doing this bounce back and forth between complexity and productivity, complexity and productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just going to keep going until the day humanity plunges into the sun. Let me repeat your question. He said, uh, the gentleman said, at some point does .NET get so complex? Sophisticated, that it takes the fun out of programming, that it sort of becomes so high level, so abstract that you, that you really don't feel connected to the machine anymore. I think there are guys who programmed in COBOL 30 years ago who think we're already there. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, realistically speaking, how many people here can tell me with definitive accuracy how many registers the CPU they've got right now in their backpack has? How many people know what a register is? <laughs> right? I mean, realistically speaking, we are stepping further and further and further away from that hardware. And, you know, I, I think in some respects there's a bit of nostalgia that kicks in. I remember when I was working on an Apple II with 64K and I found this 20 meg hard drive. Oh, wait, we already did that story. I'm sorry. <laughs> the thing of it is, right, I mean, there's a certain, you know, there, you always sort of look back on the past with a certain degree of nostalgia because things seemed so much simpler then. And the truth of it is, it's not that anything was any easier, it's just that you perhaps had a much smaller scope and breadth of experience, so you didn't have to worry about so many issues. Wasn't that long ago I was talking with somebody uh, who's a very sophisticated speaker now who was complaining about the fact that .NET was making it difficult because now they had to think about threads. When they were working in VB6, they never had to worry about threads. <laughs> and the fact is, oh yes, you did, you just didn't know it. You didn't know Ted, you you were a Java guy, or I, guess I still am, still a Java are a Java guy, and there was a lot of talk about how the JVM lost momentum as it aged because it got so much more complicated. Are we going to see sort of an entropic event, a point at which .NET hits a point of complexity that we have to abandon it for something else? Well, let me correct one small conception there in, in your question, which is to say the JVM hasn't lost momentum. The Java language has lost momentum. Okay. The JVM is still going very, very strong. As a matter of fact, Sun is considering making changes to the VM to make it more attractive for these other dynamic languages to run on top of the VM more efficiently. Right? Um, the Java language has lost a lot of momentum because when they introduced generics into the language, they did so using a, a concept known as type erasure. Unlike in the .NET space, when I, you know, when I create a generic class, it goes all the way through into the IL and then gets JIT compiled with generic type information in place. Right. That doesn't happen in the Java language. When I create an array list of T, well, it just turns into a, you know, standard plain old array list holding object references. So the Java language has certainly lost a lot of momentum and there are a lot of people looking at alternatives there. The CLR, I don't think, fits that same pattern. We may hit an entropic event, but it will be something completely different because the CLR has openly embraced multiple languages since day one, right? If nothing else, because we did not want to have to resolve the perennial argument of which is better, C-sharp or VB. Yes. We're much happier letting these people fight it out. And eventually, the death match will be over and one side or the other will win, and Microsoft will close down that division and we'll finally have one programming language to what? rule them all. What? <laughs> what? But at the same time, the CLR has allowed a whole lot of other languages to oh, flourish. Oh, F-sharp and, and, and goodness knows how many and others. And we're seeing the same thing happen in the JVM space as well. I mean, there are close to 200 different languages for the Java Virtual Machine because it's been out longer. People have been you know, building stuff on and, top and of it. And people just don't think about the JVM this way, that it actually is They're a polymer. They're starting to. Which They're people? really starting to. I can see the headline now. Microsoft cancels VB. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Who's, Scott, who's, you who's, have... Who says <laughs> that they will cancel VB? Okay, so I want to get Maybe back to the discussion of the future of .NET if I could. And I see that Scott has written down like a whole tome of notes well, I'm, I'm not writing notes about things to talk about. I'm writing... You're writing I'm some poetry? No, I'm actually. capturing I'm capturing things. He's I'm blogging learning. this later. I'm learning. Um, oh. My, Mario had a question, though. I wanted to return to the productivity thing. Um, 
and, and maybe we'll get into back to the entropic event, I don't really think that we have a lot of productivity in, in .NET development. I think we have a lot of productivity built around the moment of creation of software in .NET, which is such an infinitesimally short period of time that it's relatively insignificant to what we should be concerned with, which is the massive, almost inf inf infinitesimal, 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 it's big, infinitatitude, infinite, relatively infinite amount of time that we spend in software maintenance and extension. So most of Microsoft.NET tooling is around software creation, which is the easiest, most insignificant thing that we do in .NET. And then we switch over the moment you write the code or drag the drop, that's it. Creation's over. From then on, it's maintenance. And we got nothing for maintenance. Not in the mindset, not in the tooling. Um, and it has nothing to do with a lot of the tooling that we're, that we're being used, told to use for creation. So we don't have productivity. Sounds kind of like having kids. Well, yeah, what do you well, mean maybe, by we I have, have never had these? What do you mean of creation is short and pleasurable and then you've got 18 years of maintenance? I've what? never, I've never had 18? Uh, yeah. Good joke. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Neuer, ladies and gentlemen. So, so dragon. I can relate anything wait, to sex. Wait, wait, wait. Just dragon. try me. What, Just try me. What do you mean by we don't have anything for maintenance? Well, when so you know you've uh, you've had guys on the show who talked about the whole test driven thing and the whole you know pat inversion of control, all the stuff that guys like Dave and Jeremy and Ted even are talking about in Orn. All of these things that we're doing um, in terms of all these patterns, it's not a bunch of like you know uh, academic wanking. We're saying that we realize that all of software development, all of the effort, is in keeping it alive and allowing it to change, allowing it to extend it. That means we have to adopt patterns that allow for this. Now, the Microsoft tooling actually doesn't create software that's amenable to this. So we've abandoned that. We use the tools to the extent that we need them. We want to do layout in the visual the tooling design. doesn't create patterns. Does let it create me give software? You, let no, me give you a, a good example. Does. About two, three years ago, ASP.NET 2.0 came out. The preeminent demo for ASP.NET 2.0 was let us drag a table from the form, from the server explorer to the form, Says for properties, you're done. You have an application. And if you take, if you can tell me. It was me like that, Power Builder all over again. Yeah, right? but I had people come to me. This is how you're supposed to build enterprise application. This is what I Microsoft see. is telling me. Why are you doing it differently? Yeah. You must be wrong. No, now I'm looking at that and I'm looking, I'm seeing the SQL uh, statement inside the SPX file. I wonder how many things are wrong with that. Yeah. So. I, I get the point. The point is that it's not that there's nothing for maintenance. It's that the way that the tools build the software in the first place makes them maintenable. It's, no, it's literally not built for maintenance. It's built to be a good demo. Right. And so. you see that demo where is. But that's the draggy droppy stuff. I mean, when you're sitting there writing the code, when I'm you, you write the patterns. This is what I was getting. Think well, about no, this for you, a second. When, when, you start there, when, you when start the from, guidance sure. comes from Microsoft about look how easy and gooey right. and etc., you have a problem. You have a problem because the culture around .NET is built around those tools. But Oren, you're Maybe. missing the point. Mm. This is an opportunity for us to go out and tell people that Microsoft doesn't have a freaking clue how to use their stuff. This is our money-making opportunity. I would Shut up, dude! <laughs> Ted, I take offense with that. I would never want to step out in public and say Microsoft hasn't got a freaking clue what it's doing. Yeah. I think that's offensive. Well, I'm sorry to have offended you. Um, I don't but think not wait, very much. wait, wait, just a second. <laughs> wait a minute. Have you read this man's blog? Have you read that Twitter stream? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was trying to avoid the subject, Richard. I really didn't want to give him that opportunity. So Carl said, this is really, this is really valuable because then you said, 
the, the tools don't create the patterns, but they do, because all code has a pattern. Well, what I meant was, when you're sitting there with a blank screen and you're writing your code, you you are in charge of the of the code that that you develop. But I get it, though. I mean, I get the point that when out of the box, you drag and drop, and you run the wizards and stuff, and it generates the code, and that's what you learn from. If that's your only experience of programming, you've got a lot of but learning. But it's more fundamental than that, Carl. It's much more fundamental than that. Consider for a moment ADO.net, and consider the idea that I want to write unit tests to make sure that this code behaves the way that it does. If you hold, I mean, if you're really interested in writing quality software, you are interested in creating code that is 100% unit test code coverage, right? So how do I mock the idea of the database back there? See, in, in the Java world, all of JDBC, our data access API, is done via interfaces. And so and it's actually relatively easy to mock these up. Ted, IDB connection, IDB command, there sure. are interfaces. Sure, but there are APIs on SQL connection that people don't use, right? I mean, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're, or that people do use, right? And those... Com SQL command, add with value. This is something that is so important because it saves me five lines of code. So, yeah, and that's a reason to use SQL connection instead of the IDB connection. Sure. Absolutely. And how easy is that to mock up? Absolutely no. Well, well yeah. see, that's the problem, right? Yeah. The, the very basic APIs, forget the tooling for a second, forget the draggy droppy stuff, as you put it, right? That must be a VB term. Is that a VB term? Uh, yeah. Okay. It's system.draggy-droppy. System.draggy-droppy. Yeah, see, I've never used that assembly, so I don't know. Hey, this is Carl, just taking a minute with a message from our friends at Telerik. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 Ajax applications with Web 1.0 components? That's right, you just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components, and that's exactly what Telerik has done. Their RAD Controls for ASP.NET AJAX suite is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET AJAX, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET AJAX API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. So visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX right now and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Point is, the core APIs, I mean, the way Microsoft designs their software is not designed around the idea of doing unit testing. How do I unit test a workflow? You don't. Oh, God. Don't and try. therein lies the problem. It's not just a question of does Visual Studio let me generate unit tests it's a question of, do the core APIs let me unit test effectively? And when the answer is no, they're not thinking about maintenance. We can unit test workflows. So anybody anybody out there, and I'm, I'm, maybe I'm get, I picked this up off of, of Beth and Julia, who are probably out there saying, but you can, I've done it. And no, that's not what we're saying, but I read that. And you, thank you, Beth Massey, ladies and I think she was just drinking a beer. Um, <laughs> here's the interesting thing, and I want to say, like, there's, you know, we say unit test and we say testability. And then people would should say, logically in the audience, should say, but I have written unit tests for workflows, so these guys must be off the rocker. And the issue is we have to sort of like 
get our jargon leveled and say, when we say testability, we mean minimum testability. And that minimum testability is not the testability that we currently get, currently get if we wrote a unit test against the current Windows workflow. We want a level of testability that lives, gives us the productivity that we expect when we do test-driven development, which is really, really difficult around these APIs because we can't get what we call, we say testability, we're meaning minimum testability, which, uh, which actually means a level of productivity that we haven't yet been able to achieve with .NET tooling, in RAD tooling, like Windows Workflow and like drag and drop designers. Now, if we had, you know, drag and drop designers where if I, if I could do my screen layout, because it's important to do, we all know that doing a, uh, UI first stuff is good, whether we're doing test driven or unit testing, it's great. If I could click the button and drop into a, uh, a unit test file, rather than into a code behind file that gave me the choice of which pattern I'm using, supervisor control, whatever the pattern names are. That'd be great, I'd still use, I'd still double click the button. The thing is, it does create a pattern, it's just creating the wrong pattern. Now the, now the wiring up of the double clicky UI thing, it sounds great, I'd like to use that. Unfortunately, it's not generating the right code for, and we call it maintainability, and it's not really a good thing to call it maintainability. If you understand that all software development is maintenance, let's just call it hell. Business health. It's software health. If we can make, if we can keep health up, and we get the visual designers to do that, then rock it. And we get Microsoft there. I don't know if that's the future of .NET. It's the future I'd like it to be of .NET. Well, and I think what we're realizing here in this whole conversation is we're talking about the future we'd like for .NET. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, what I like about what you just said there, Scott, is it's something very concrete. Everybody's clicked on a button and dropped into a code behind. And that does in naturally encourage the risk of bad behavior. To drop into a test unit would be much more sensible. Really? All right, Goran. I'm writing a lot of util code. Utility code for me is something that I write in an hour, half an hour. I don't want to write test for that. I don't want to be, uh, to be forced into Nobody's Super forcing you. It'd be no, a good I mean, option. No, no, no. It was just, it was just, an, it was just saying in the circumstance where you would be doing a UI thing where you'd want to double click on the button. Now I understand what you're saying. I don't often write unit tests for like, for glue code or utility code or batching code and, you know, like system code or whatever. That's okay. I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying in those circumstances that you would use a negative pattern. Why not allow the tooling? Cause I don't, I didn't come from academia, right? I mean, you guys might like think I'm just crazy going off on test driven development and patterns. I'm a Fox no, crazy. Crazy. Pro programmer, right? I mean, I come out of the world of RAD that Visual Basic never achieved. So I'm all about RAD. Ooh, I, them's fighting words, man. <laughs> so I want to use the RAD designers. I just want the, them to use, put them in, use them in a way that allows me to do, uh, healthful systems. Unfortunately, I have to abandon most of that because the tooling doesn't achieve that. Let me do that. So we're not just saying don't do it. It will always be bad. It's like at the moment, Microsoft doesn't quite understand how to do this stuff because it doesn't really suit demoware. Rico Mariani has a great phrase. when he, he, he used to be the CLR performance architect. I love that title, by the way. And one of the things he said is what we want to do with our tools and our software is we want to enable developers to fall into the pit of success. I love nice. that phrase. The easiest thing is the right thing to do. Absolutely. But you see, if you talk, this is the future that we want to see. If you're talking about the direction that I see from a lot of stuff from Microsoft, I see it going the way that we can trust developers. We uh, have um, 
people that aren't aware of what they're doing, and we need to protect that, uh, protect them. Protect us from them. Protect, protect them. Protect yeah. Us from protect, them. protect us. Protect from them from uh, themselves. No, no, no. Protect Microsoft from uh, whatever the people, uh, the developer, the end developer will do. So you see things coming out that are crippled, that are uh, unsuitable for any real-world application. Mm. That are. Uh, I'm using this word intentionally because recently I was in a product review for a new product for Microsoft. And during this review, I uh, blew up in a very bad way. I apologize later for the team, but what ticked me off in just about the worst way possible was that the team never thought about source control. This is, a, this is a product that was supposed to ship for developers, and they never considered source control. Their solution was not a, a usable in source control. Okay, if you don't get source control right, no matter how visual or how lovely your designer look like, you aren't working in a real system. And considering this is something that is going to ship very soon, how on earth did you get to this situation? And I'm say, and the source control sample is the worst that I've seen. So you can tell us what the product was? Entity framework. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I'm just it's trying. a shame there's nobody in the audience with a competing viewpoint who might want to come up here and take a microphone, By Julia. Way, if you have questions for our panel and would like to contribute, uh, come right up here. I think I'm Mario has something. Yeah, Mario, come on up. <laughs> come on. So, like, oh, me? I don't want to leave the entity framework topic just yet, though. I mean, we have a lot of mileage to get out of this one. All right, Mario Cardinal. Quick, ask a question. Ask a <laughs> Quick, question. Change the topic. Well, I, I want to change the topic because I think that basically the major problem we're facing right now is that Microsoft is coming with new API, new stuff every year. They don't even fix what's, what is not working. You were saying that they don't program, you, they don't give us interface. So, and the way I see the future, and I don't know what you think about it, but if they continue, you know, evolving in that path, not this, the CLR will never fail on itself, but the tooling, everything is going to collapse at some point because the developer will just say, well, you know what? I'm going to use something else. Something else that will probably run on, on a top of a, a virtual machine. That'll be the CLR or Java, whatever, but that'll be an, another language, something simple. Because we, we need simplicity, and Microsoft right now, they don't give us simplicity. I don't think that the Microsoft customer community has the independence that would predicate making those kinds of decisions. Because, you know, we always come across Microsoft customers, not all of them. Uh, when you have a Microsoft customer that also has Java and COBOL, you typically have really broad-minded people. But the medium and smaller businesses are typically, uh, their, 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 their solutions are dictated by Microsoft uh, dogma. So I don't really know that they're gonna just we're all just gonna choose to to choose the alternatives. Some of us have taken the red pill, and we're waking up from this and understanding that the alternatives are we're not necessarily gonna go and use Ruby on Rails, but we might go and learn from Ruby on Rails and then go back to Microsoft and ask for improvements. But not everybody. I don't think I don't think that you should go to Microsoft and ask for improvements. It's 
Spoken like the I, true open sourcer that you are. I am. Nice. I am. But for crying out loud, why do I have to go to Microsoft to do something? I'm a developer. I can make my own software. I'm getting, I'm actually getting paid for that. You go do that then. Independent thinker who has not come under the sphere of influence of Microsoft. Now you have to differentiate Uh, your attitudes and I, look, look, let's just do this. Let let me, let me give you the, I think you're brilliant. I think you're an independent thinker, but, and I want to call that out for the world so that we don't have to do this again. Yes, you are that. However, however, (laughs) we have to recognize that most Microsoft or many, I'm sorry, not most, but many Microsoft customers aren't as independent as you and you have to sort of separate what you see, what I see from my own perspective is a lot of people using tools that I write. So, and I use a lot of tools that other, of course you do, because you have them and that's your community. I'm using a lot of people that other people write, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, this uh, cross-pollination going on. And I know that uh, if I have to go and look at a workflow, I look at that. Hmm, that's strange. It still doesn't work with source control. Not going to use that. I'm going to write my own. Took me about three hours. It does what I want. It doesn't do everything, but it does what I want. But that's you. Yes, but well, you're just one guy. What? We got a whole community of people making bad decisions that you can't make. You're, I, I'm, what I'm saying is, I'm seeing a lot more people choosing to do a, a, an informed decision, an informed evaluation about what they are getting. You don't see people just. Well, this is the new team. We should uh, do that. But here's the question, right? I mean, obviously, you guys are going to continue to disagree for hours if somebody doesn't intervene. <laughs> um, the thing of it is, really, if 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 the community, right, as as you suspect, Warren, grows and says, "Look, what Microsoft does is crap. We're building our own tools because what they're doing is great for demoware, but is not solving real problems." Do you believe, I mean, I, I kind of do, do you believe that Microsoft will look around, realize that they're rallying people to the flag and nobody's showing up, and go, oh, well, we want to be over there and go and now. build something over there? I'm seeing that now. Uh, take a look at, at uh, the MSNBC. That's a great example of the community saying, we don't want to deal with the web from a uh, complexity. We are, what is H- what is web development? Sending a string to the client? Come on, is this, sh- this is not open science. This shouldn't be, and it should be how. It's 3270 with pictures. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's 3270 with video because that's what made porn possible. Right. <laughs> so when you, when you see... So the porn th- killed the mainframe. Isn't that a no, porn revived the mainframe. Ah. Right. We call it HTTP now. Ah. <laughs> Jeffrey Palermo. So my question is about the future of the .NET industry, and it appears to me that we sort of have a divergence in the industry. One one sector wants to write applications as fast as possible and, and how to get it out, and then the other sector is concerned about uh, writing long-lived applications. And do you agree with that perception? Do you see it diverging further, coming together, or somehow? I, I don't. I don't think that's the. I don't think that's the distinction. We've got people that need to get business software done as fast as possible. Always, no one's got a budget to do it slow as possible. If they do, I'd really like to have you hire me as a consultant. What do you know, Cobalt? <laughs> I can. I can make you as slow as humanly possible. I truly can. Because I think there's some guys at EDS that are hiring. <laughs> Ouch! If you want to go slow, it's uh, go to go to T- go to EDS. They're right over there. 
Um, we all we all want to do it fast. Now, right? The difference is whether want we do it fast and healthy or fast and dirty. Why no? And what? Hey, no. <laughs> go Taylor. That's a different no, I know show. you're taking what, on Okay, what is fast? Is fast time to market? I can do that, and I can do that uh, using maintainable approaches. And next week, when okay, I'm on the market. So now I have to go to the city hotel. Okay, now we have to write the, uh, the application from scratch. We are now have to stop doing whatever for six months, for a year. So I don't see that as a responsible uh, decision. I can make an application and, uh, that would be very, that would have very fast turnaround would, and that would still be maintainable as it goes. I don't think that uh, choosing to do the uh, going around all the way is uh, any way workable the moment that you step outside of the demo well. What are, what are you doing when you have an application that has 50 screens? This is a relatively small application. If you're using demoware, if you use the demoware approach, if you use RAD, the application will collapse under its own weight. How many times has Visual Studio been rewritten from the ground up? Zero. Zero. I rewritten. Rewritten? Zero. Visual Studio? Visual Studio. I don't think that you could rewrite I'm not talking that. about Visual Studio.net. I'm talking about Visual Studio. Even before. I, I'm not aware of Visual Studio being rewritten. From, from talking with the guys who are on the VSX team, I mean, there is a, if you want to write a language service today for Visual Studio, you are writing to the managed APIs, which are a wrapper around the, the COM APIs that have been there since God knows when, since I'm guessing, Inter-dev? you know, uh, possibly, I don't right. know, I mean, well, easily 10 or 15 years ago. Well, they did it right, did they not? No, no, no. And I'm telling you, and I don't think that a Microsoft would disagree with me when I'm saying that the, the API design of features to do is uh, not right for now. But you know what? Here's an application that has been, uh, that has survived for 15 years, for 20 years, something like that. It has been continuously updated. It works. It may be not uh, uh, really nice, but it works. And if you look at the API, you see that for the time it was written, it was written with a lot of consideration for maintainability. Our uh, expectation about maintainability have changed, absolutely. So Well, and the environment's changed, too, because they wrote oh, yeah. it originally in COM, expecting that you know people who understood COM would consume this. Now when we start talking about the managed space, a lot of the COM details are getting pushed down into the CLR itself, and so mm-hmm. we're not... If you're not a com programmer, if you don't have some background with, you know, apartments and threading and so forth, you can get yourself into trouble inside of VSX. Actually, uh, here is uh, something about maintainability. The expectation of a com application in error handling, you get an H result. 0x8, 000p, blah, blah, blah. Stop. Yeah. Stop. I, I did a lot of therapy to try to forget that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My expectation in a .NET application is to get an error that goes, you have uh, forgot to initialize the active, record, uh, uh, the active record starter. Please call active record starter.initialize with the correct assemblies. I want to get that kind of... This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about maintainability. And would you like me to do that for you now? Yes or no? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, Clippy, I did, bring back Clippy. We I like Clippy that, for Visual Studio. Yesterday, I that did was a shut David. up, David Totsky. <laughs> Yesterday, I uh, I had a presentation about monorail. The way that I did the presentation, monorail, monorail. Yes, I I hit a web page. They tell me you don't have a controller. I created the controller. 
You don't have an action. I created the action. You don't have the view. I created the view. And it showed me the hello world. In just that. Please just turn off the car before you open the door. No. Yeah, stuff like that. You know what? It's very annoying if you do it over, if you go overboard, but when the application explicitly and aggressively attempt to help you, it's significantly increased the amount of stuff that you can do. Because you don't have to remember all, the, all this stuff because the application will tell you that. The, the, this is something that's considered very important. Well, let's, 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 you know, let's call you out. Well, I mean, let's call out the, the white elephant in the room. I did a presentation on that today. Right? I'm sorry, do you have a microphone? Would you like one? I have a talking Well, come up here if you want to make a point. Serious. Because your, your voice is as loud and as booming as it is. Come is on. not being captured on. on the mic. And that will make it very hard for people to hear your question. Insightful as it may be. The lovely or not. and talented David Todsky, Hot Todsky, as we used to hot, call him in Ineta. Hot Todsky, as he was known in a former life. Get it right up there. Um, a couple questions. Just one quick thing for Scott about double clicking the button and I jump to a test. Well, what do I double click now to go actually write the code for the button? You don't. I have to manually go back there now. You don't. You don't. The test actually, when you write the test for the expectation of the behaviors that happen from the button logic, you would use a tool like ReSharper, which is like the thing, I mean, the Visual Studio Core, what we call, uh, of competence, let's say, <laughs> and, and micro forward generate the code off of, off of the specification. I mean, let's not get, let's not get okay, hung up so. on the actual tool experience. Right. Something, you know, it, it may be a right click, right, that on the button that says, all right, let's generate a test scaffold for this page, or right click, and now we go to the actual business. The actual right. UI experience is a detail that's getting, you know, that's a detail we don't want to get right. lost into right now. The point is, right now, there is zero support out of Studio's right. box to do testing code. Okay. And then a question for Oren? Yeah. Um, you said the, the, the tool should tell me, oh, you need to do this now, you need to do that now. Who defines what needs to be done? Do I do it your way? Do I do it Scott's way or Ted's way? What or? is the tool? My way. You were just mentioning, it says, oh, you don't have this, so I make one of those. Oh, you don't have that. Well, maybe I don't want one. Um, no, what I'm talking about is... Because soon you have user access no, control. You do because we're talking, Turn that off. We're Turn talking, that off. So, David, we're, we're, talking about, we're talking about within a specific context of a very specific framework that implies an architecture, and within a, that architecture, the decisions are obvious. So we're applying constraints through architecture rather than applying constraints through RAD. So, so in that case, right? Exactly. You have to have an M and a V and a C, and 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 Oren knows that because he's working within that, and you would because you're working within those constraints. In another framework architecture for another UI pattern, like composite UI through MVP or something, you might have other constraints, and the tooling could guide you through that way. What is interesting is that the runtime errors actually understand what's happening and provide you the guidance within the constraints of the architecture. I mean, at the end of the day, this is what architecture is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to lead developers down that same down path, path that leads you into the pit of success, whatever that means for this particular application. Is, is this the real weakness we're seeing in the .NET development stack right now is that we don't have good architecture tools? No, I think what we're seeing right now is we don't have good constraints. That Microsoft wants to not constrain anybody from doing whatever they want. And we saw this in the Entity Framework talk, let's say, I'll call it out by name, we said, hey, those scenarios are really anti-patterns. They're not really going to lead to customer success. At least they'll lead to arbitrarily diminished customer success. And the response was, yeah, but we have customers that really want to do this. And so constraints can is, be optional, right? Well, mm -hmm. they should be recommended. 
At but, least. but they could certainly be turned on and off. I mean, but, if you couldn't, oh, totally, if you totally. couldn't turn off your constraints, you'd have, like I said, user access control. Well, hang on a second. I mean, there's, there's, I think, several different issues that get conflated here when we start pointing fingers at Microsoft and saying they're screwing up. Part of the problem is that when you join the company and move to Redmond, you enter this reality distortion field. <laughs> and one of the problems that frequently strikes companies is they start listening to their customers. Because in many respects, their customers are exactly the wrong place to go for innovation. There is a great book along these lines called The Innovator's Dilemma. If you look across the last 20 years, companies that built success based on innovation were then unable to innovate to the next generation and survive. Look at a lot of your storage media companies as we see the solid state moving in. Where are the, the traditional leaders of storage? They're actually catching up on some of the solid state stuff. You know, before, before the larger drives, the new kinds of, you know, hard drive formats, you know, IDE, ATA, SATA, et cetera. All of these companies that had this great idea and then slowly fell behind, they fell behind because they said, oh, what our customers want are bigger, cheaper, faster versions of what we already have. So that's what we must give. We're being a good company. We're delivering what our customers want. We can't count on the customer to innovate. You can only ask, count on the customer to ask for But this more. is the problem that Microsoft faces is they believe that innovation means sitting in a dark room thinking about a particular problem coding up sort of an alpha or or even a you know a, a, an early beta presenting it to their customers and saying what do you think so and their customers say oh that looks great i want that ship it and in relation to that the customer generally have 3 days a week a month to evaluate something like that and at no point along the way do you have real world constraint on the application source control the uh, Source control, if you don't, if you don't do real application, you wouldn't realize that you don't, you don't have support for source control. Source control doesn't bite you on the first day. It doesn't, well, it, it bites you after you went, uh, you had the first release, and now you have the maintenance release and the, uh, active, uh, active branch, and now you want to have, to fix a bug in the, in the maintenance release, and now you realize, wait a minute, I can't merge the, the, the change that I did. I now have to to write everything so so. I mean, so in some much. respects, it's it seems criminal that any product could come out of a tool company that hasn't at least been vetted through some kind of cycle of maintenance, right? I mean, at some point, somebody should have picked up X, be it workflow, WCF, you know, entity framework, link, whatever, and said, "All right, I'm going to build a manufactured real world problem." Right, because I talk to my customer and they're dealing with, they want to build an e-commerce portal. Great. I'm going to take two months, three months, whatever, and I'm going to build this application according to a scenario. You know, we're literally going to create personas. We're going to create a, a, a problem persona and solve this problem with this tool. And we're going to do it in the same way that a real company would do it and vet it. And for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like, I'm, I have no doubt that there are people in Redmond right now screaming at the top of their lungs going, but we do that. Yes. But we don't feel it. The scenarios that they cook up don't seem to apply to well, what's, being, what's happening see, out here. We do see an awful lot of demo apps out of Microsoft, but you never hear them talk about the source control for it. 
or the development practice necessarily they put around it. I think about the Fitch and Mathers and the Adventure Works. Absolutely. All these sorts of apps. And you're saying the, that the value there would be to see the infrastructure that they use to make that app. I no. can tell you that for DemoWare, you don't use that. For something like PetShop, you have to, that you can rewrite yeah, What do you think? PetShop was written by, was not written by Microsoft originally. It was written and, by You know, Sony. maybe it's yeah. a little unfair and without blue badge representation here for somebody to, uh, to, to yeah, cap that opinion, left. but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, I'm sure, but uh, what I'm, this is an invitation for any, anybody from Microsoft to, to send us an email and, uh, and, and talk to this point. But what do you think the thinking there is? Do you think the thinking is that we don't want to make it this out of the cool. box too complex? Because obviously they can do it. It's not a matter of not being it's able to. It's an issue of this is cool. This, in, this is an issue of we cool? build, uh, this is cool. This is a new, this is something new. You know, a lot of this stuff is cool. It's a lot of this stuff is really interesting. Now what do you think Microsoft is thinking? Why they do no, not? He's saying, he's saying. They're thinking this will be cool if we do this. This okay. will generate oohs and ahs right. at TechEd. Emotional reactivity, fascination, and attachment. But I think right? versus one the, competency. One of the things that they don't consider okay. is how it works over a long period of time. I'm not interested uh, right now. I'm not interested, uh, the way I evaluate the technology is to build real-world stuff in it. Because that's the only way I can say if it's workable or not. And real-world means to me that I build an application that does some sort of complex logic that I'm going through at least two iterations, two iteration, including a deployment for production. Produ in production in this case means a second box. Right. So I can, so I can say, okay, now I, uh, now I had a deployed to production. How do I uh, uh, do a second deployment? How do I make something like that? What is the pain point along the way? If I'm talking about something like, uh, I did work on Microsoft CRM. Okay. This is a. I'm sorry. Yes, I know. I actually quit my job because uh, they asked me to do another project like that. <laughs> okay, so I can't feel strongly, I can't say st how much I love this product. I mean, in some respects... But, oh, give me a second. Sorry. Here is the uh, how you're supposed to do upgrades. You are supposed to take the current schema, generate some uh, XML, file from, uh, XML file from it, copy it to the production machine, and run it. In 90% of the time, you get generic SQL error. This is a quote. In which case, you have to go through all the uh, tables and the columns and manually merge that. We actually had a deployment to production that took three weeks and included, and included replacing the domain controller for the company. <laughs> okay? Sorry. That is not a good solution. And that is... Uh, that was a feature. I don't really think That was so. designed to keep consultants employed. You nice. keep missing the point. But, and you were doing this this long deployment onto the production system, so effectively you were down while it was going on. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. fun for me trying to explain to the customer why. And it's my fault, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. See, one of the things that I think, and, and, and this is a challenge to people who work inside of Microsoft, is to stop working on product teams for a while. I really think what happens, I mean, just as if an architect stops coding and just starts, you know, dragging and dropping and, and doing Visio and PowerPoint, they lose touch with the real world constraints that are facing developers in today, right? 
If you stop coding for five years, you're not going to know what the problems are. A lot of the folks at Microsoft, particularly those who are designing their products, have been inside of Microsoft for years. Right? They've been there for five years, 10 years, 15 years in some cases. And they've moved around within the company onto different projects and different teams. But fundamentally, Microsoft is a software product company. And let's be honest, when we start talking about dogfooding your stuff, that can be very difficult. That can actually be really hard. Harry Pearson, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him because Harry left being an architectural evangelist and went to go work for Microsoft IT. And he actually tried to use some of Microsoft's products and discovered some very interesting things about when they work and when they don't. And I, I'm not going to try to repeat what he says. He does it much better than I do in terms of the actual, you know, the experiences that he found. But one of the things he discovered is that service broker, he loves service broker. He thinks this really neatly solves IT problems because he's used it on a Microsoft IT project. If I'm Steve Ballmer, I am going to institute that every architect in Microsoft must rotate Every 18 months or so must spend at least two or three months working as part of Microsoft IT using the stuff they've designed to make sure to get that feedback on what it is they do because right now they are so removed from that feedback loop that they don't know. They genuinely don't know, I think, that there are issues with the stuff that they built. And if they hear it, they write it off as, well, people are grumbling and they just didn't understand what we were trying to build. Here's another example. Um, about um, the when people in in Microsoft, I don't think that a lot of the people there are looking outside. A good example would be the entity framework the uh, Hybrid Mafia in two thousand and seven, last <laughs> VP summit. When never heard people, of it. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, Is that your fault? I I yes. never heard of it. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> We admit, we, we still have to talk about that. <laughs> but, uh, and they start, the, and the entity framework team starts thinking, well, this is something like a automatic dirty checking. A feature that in Hibernate and Hibernate had for the last seven years, something right. like that. And the, some of the MVP, I think James said that. Why aren't you using, why aren't you doing the tracking inside the framework? Why are you forcing the entity to do its own dirty checking. And the answer that he got was, well, obviously, uh, the framework can do that because this is not, uh, from performance perspective, this is not possible. Well, this is a surprise to me because, again, this is how in Hibernate and Hibernate were doing that in very large system for a long time. So, and I'm looking at, okay, the entity framework team creating something that one of its capabilities is supposed to be an ORM. And you don't look outside to see what's going on? No, it's not, actually. Uh, so we were told that, square off, that the Entity Framework is not an ORM. Not, not, not an ORM, but not an ORM. So that's great. Really? No, that's, that's sort of... very zen. All right, now Danny, Danny's not here, so you know, he doesn't get a chance to, to defend himself. But really, we were told that it's not really an ORM. Except that most folks right now see the Entity Framework as an ORM. Right. So our, our question to back to the Entity Framework team, just as a matter of social responsibility and ethics, would you go back to your customer community and say to them, 
who are using and choosing to say that this and use it as an ORM and say to them, this is not really an ORM, just as you said to the insiders. Now, I might be misremembering it, and if I am, I'm sorry. It might just be spewing my propaganda, but that would be a socially responsible thing to do. Because if you're looking for an ORM, and Entity Framework isn't really an ORM, then you, and, you're, and you're looking for something that is really an ORM, maybe Entity Framework is interesting. Now, Entity Framework's got another thing that's going on. It's got a lot of highfalutin ideas that are pretty damn cool. However, the first implementation is a, uh, a prototype of an ORM that might be written on a framework that we kind of jokingly refer to as an object relational mapper mapper, which is a framework to write other object relational frameworks. Yeah, we've seen how we've seen which how Which is really, really, really abstract. It's really abstract. So when, when Oren is saying, you want to write an application and then extract a framework from the application. So build an application, do real world work, understand what the framework that already exists within those kinds of applications, and then extract a framework. We're not really seeing that from the entity framework. We're seeing really interesting abstractions, but we're seeing, hey, the, you know, Dr. Chen's idea circa so long ago it doesn't matter anymore. Let's try to write that now and see if we can experimentally build this framework. It's really interesting stuff. And I like the way you guys talk about it on .NET Rocks because you're always talking about, and I remember the interview with Julia Lerman, we were talking about really interesting ways to do, right, query engines? Right. Right, really interesting ways to do query engines and, and optimization. That's really cool. But that's actually not what an object relational mapping framework does. An object relational mapping framework is more in, uh, concerned with um, the uh, transactional uh, OLTP, right. the, not, the, the part of CRUD that is not the retrieve. And we have less facilities to do the retrieve part than everything else. And the entity framework is the opposite. It's got more facilities, and you and we call this out by listening to people talking about it and saying, wow, these retrieve capabilities are really interesting. The way we can reason about a model and, and surface a model, that's great. That's a query engine. That's not an ORM. So let's get real clear about when we have people going out in the world. We need a great re reasoner, a great query engine, and you're a database guy. You can talk this more than I can about the value of this for, for BI and for reporting, but for an ORM... Entity framework just isn't it yet, and the product team is kind of making intimations that they're not really willing to come out yet and say that it is good for that. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm not saying that it is good, and they're very careful about this. So we really need to be careful. God, this brings back bad memories. Uh, we okay, really Scott, need to be careful I'm, I'm going to come back to this because I think memories. we could tie this together a bit. Let, let's see what Morrow has to say for himself. Okay, thank you. Uh, isn't this, is an is not an ORM, more of a semantics question? Uh, maybe it would be, is it hibernate or not hibernate kind of question. Uh, and maybe uh, with Entity Framework, Microsoft is using its leadership uh, to do things in a slightly different way, but in, in a positive way, uh, and not exactly listen to the customers like we want to uh, hibernate version of .NET, but they are indeed doing something different that might even be more useful. Maybe, except, so, I can only tell you from my first experience. I took, oh, I took Entity Framework into production with a team of six people to build an application on it and found that we ended up with more code than I would have, would have had in Hibernate. And then we hit the issue with the merge conflicts on the files. We found that it was not a good framework in practice. Okay, this was last year. Maybe they made advances, but it turns out that, you know, well, we are feeling after meeting with the Entity Framework guys was there weren't really that many advances because the architecture had been locked. So, yes, it's possible, in theory, that that's the case, that this represents an innovation. It's possible. My 
tangible experience with it, and I'm only one guy, says that uh, that's not the, the case in this case. I mean, at the end of the day, Microsoft is in a can't-win-for-trying kind of scenario, right? If they produce a solution that works really, really well for 50% of their customers, then the other 50% of their customer base is going to say, oh, my God, you've completely locked us out. You have no idea what you're doing. You're a bunch of stupid morons. If they produce a solution that works for 80%, of their customers, the 20% will get even more vocal as they, fought, as they fight to be heard over the general adulation. If they produce a solution that works for 95% of their customer base, well then the VB6 crowd will stand up and start screaming yeah, at yeah, them. Wait for that to come. Uh, very nice. I mean, at the end of the day, they're really in a position where no matter what they do, they're going to make somebody angry. And, you know, to a certain degree, I feel bad for them, right? Now, I'm not weighing in. I mean, I'm, I, I, quite frankly, I'm completely out of the whole, you know, ORM entity framework. I, I believe all ORMs are the Vietnam. Can't we of all just get science. along? That's what you're saying. Right? Well, no, I think ORMs suck. Period. Right. End of story. Oh, okay. All right. Right? Wait, we already had that conversation. We've already had that conversation. We did that last yes. year. But the point of it is, I mean, let's take it away from Entity Framework for just a second so those guys in Redmond can stop bleeding for, for a little bit, right? <laughs> You know, this is a problem. This is a really hard thing to do to build a tool, a language, a API, whatever, that satisfies the 80% of customers that use it. And the problem is that we as a community, we're not satisfied with 80%. We want 100%. We want something that will take it completely through that last mile and solve all of our problems without any sort of thought on our end whatsoever. Ted, we I, want a tool that will spit out good code. I completely disagree because I don't want the 100%. I want the 20 bottom percent. If you're going to give me a tool, there are certain uh, things that it must support without questions. Sure. If you're going to give me a development environment, Source control is not a feature that you can delay for version two. I think this we're is a, a real language. sore issue with you. I think we're having, I think we're let having me, a language. Let me give you a, a language let me, figure. Just you know, a second. He's Ted saying Microsoft customers, and you think that you are in that community. <laughs> oh, God. The, this, we're back the, the to this point. We're, there's we're Microsoft customers and Orin. There's right. There's, <laughs> there's like normal people, and then there's gods. And I, you know, I'm normal, and these guys are not normal. Yeah. <laughs> They're gods. And, and I think that we have to Too represent more. the normal people. I think you're right. I think you could. I think you could make fire from water, honestly, Orin. And I think you could too, Ted. And <laughs> with enough gasoline, you would be surprised what you can do. Wow, do you overestimate my abilities? I don't know what he's talking. About. But we have to. We have to look at normal people. We have like, to look at normal apps. And I struggle to be as good as you guys. And I don't think I ever will. But so I sit down and try to use these tools and find out the real problems that real normal people would have. And I'm finding that there are the same things that these guys are calling out. You're right. You shouldn't try to make an ORM solution an ORM framework, the solution for the 100% at all, you will hurt a lot. And 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 Oren and is kind of saying the same thing, but in Hebrew, which is right to left. So, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Is this um, Scott Belwar peacemaker? Nah, yeah, I, I don't oh, recognize who is that guy? weird guy. What's his? Name? What have you done with Scott? I. This is who I am. Uh, except on. So guys, we we're, we're running out of time here. I mean, what couple of things that sort of came out of looking at what we'd like the future .NET to be? I think. The fastest development solution being the most maintainable. I've got a really concrete example yes. of something that's happening right now in, in Microsoft that may be a good sign, which okay. is 
the Prism guys, Glenblock and PNP, who are building the next composite application framework stuff, right? They, with the you know some of the input from the Alt.net community and some other guys in the community who think like this, have decided to try to build a framework, uh, an application, a little bit, build do some application work, and then try to act, abstract, pull out, extract a framework. This is maybe that might not be the future, but it would be great if it would. It would change Entity Framework. It would change SSIS. It would change the tooling. It would change Visual Studio. It would change Office. It would change Windows. To do real-world work, as Ted said, send the guys out to the real world. And I would love to host Microsoft, Microsoft folks who uh, might want to come out to the real world and spend some time in like a work-study program. We all would, because we want the platform to succeed. We want it to be better. We don't have to want to jump around from platform to platform looking for the next usable thing. Let's make it better. And, and that means really getting out of the ivory tower. And we would welcome people to come out of the ivory tower. And some are, and that's really positive. And, and Oren's right in that respect, and Ted's right, that there are changes afoot, but they're really slow. And you have to move hell on earth, hell on earth uh, to, to, to make the, you know, the folks come out, because it's really, really comfortable in the ivory tower. They've got catering there. <laughs> and let's, 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 be, let's be really clear, too. The ivory tower is not a bad thing, because when you stand that high up, you get a much larger yep. macro view of what's going on, and you can see sea changes. You can see general patterns of people building kind, you know, these kinds of things, and you can react to that and say, "Well, wait a minute. I see over there. There's a guy who's really, really productive, and 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 what he's doing is X, Y, and Z." I'm pointing randomly. I'm not pointing at anybody. <laughs> Richard and Carl are like, "Who is that guy? It's Who is gym. he pointing at?" <laughs> Thing is. <laughs> I mean, we can see that. The guy from EDS raised his hand. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, 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 not you, the guy next. I would just like to say that .NET Rocks is not a supporting or a dis-supporting EDS <laughs> well, goes, in any way. There goes your EDS sponsorship money. Yeah, Sorry right. about no. that, guys. So Another we had folks one. doing like Harry Pearson did. Get out in the world, go Absolutely. out, and do a, do a co-op, Absolutely. and then come back. And you know, this is interesting. When we complain about, like, Lean organizations. We'd all, some of us like Microsoft to be lean. There's a really great story. And I know you're trying to wrap it up. There's a great story about the guy who. <laughs> you know we're trying to wrap it up, but you're going to keep going uh, anyway. No, there's just, <laughs> I want to send a, a request to Microsoft. There was, there was a vice president of a product line at Toyota who didn't understand why the family minivan wasn't working so well. So he went out, a VP went out and drove that minivan in every province in Canada, every state in the U.S., in every state in Mexico to understand why people drove the way they did, how they drove, and what the life was like in their minivan. And it turned into changes of the product that then turned that minivan into one of the best-selling units in its bracket. If we had Microsoft folks doing that, we would welcome them. More, more cup holders, basically. Was that the That's right. Yeah, you were right. right. That was it. That more was cup it. holders. Yeah. More cup Fold holders it. and angle the, angle the wheels. So it only costs $150,000. No, For my point of view, if you're talking about the future of .NET, I can see two major scenarios. One of them is the ASP.NET MVC or the PRISM guys from PNP that are actively looking outside and learning uh, how uh, the people in the real world want to have their application. This is one yeah. scenario. The second is the entity framework or the workflow or SSIS, which doesn't consider real-world concerns, I think, at all, okay? You really like the Entity Framework, don't you, Arne? <laughs> I have no opinion about the Entity Framework itself. 
I have strongest observation <laughs> about so the... So in other words, the software they built doesn't suck. The people who built it... Oh, I heard that, that too. That's really what I heard. No, yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Mr. Mr. Absolutely I heard. not. You are not going to be allowed back into the United States at the rate you're going, my friend. Guys, with that, with that, that we're going to have to wrap it. But I think if I could just let you finish, yes, you're going to say fix the damn source control, right? Yeah, uh, that's, yes. All right. But one moment. <laughs> Well, wait, 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 it's not I'm finished. Sorry, Don't okay. clap I'm yet. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Give me just one moment to finish. Sure. What I'm saying that, hey, about the entity framework team, I think, they're, I think they're doing wonderful things. They need to consider the real world scenarios about the... Don't hurry, man. The music is starting. Life is hard. Pay my taxes and my credit card. Thank you for listening, Dan. Okay. Now, after I cut, after I cut a Scott microphone, I want to finish. What I'm saying, if you're talking about going that route of let us make it rapid, rad, and unmaintainable and demo well, what you will see is increased irrelevancy of these products. And I know that some, at least some of these products which are out there aren't seen the expected, um, uh, not expe ex expected acceptance, acceptance uh, from the from the uh, community in large because they are not solving the problem that they have. So you have, but either one, either the Prism and uh, MSNBC or the Workflow and EF and SSIS and. If it's, if it's, if it's go to that route, you will see it being completed by the community and that's it. All right, Oren, thank you. Orenini, Scott Bellware, Ted Neward, give him a big hand. Yeah. <laughs> and congratulations, Scott, you found someone who complains more than you do. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van by the FCC. I 